loved ones. What's going on? I'm Bruce. This is season two, episode four of A Bigger Story, The Sum Pump Sessions, because the sum pump might go off behind me. (laughs) It hasn't so far, but there's always a first time. And these are the monks of the Abbey of Our Lady of Gethsemane near Bardstown, Kentucky, which is about 25 miles, by the way, from the Jim Beam Distillery. I just throw that tidbit in for no extra charge. Maybe you've heard of Thomas Merton. He was a monk at Gethsemane Abbey. The monks there are Trappist monks. Those are monks of the Order of Cistercians of the Strict Observance, which means, among other things, they take these radical vows of and observe nearly total silence in their communal life together, saving instances of spiritual direction, especially for the novices, chapter meetings when they meet to consider the needs of and make decisions for the community as a community. And of course, when they're chanting the liturgies and the Psalms and the other scripture as they pray and observe the hours. Can you imagine a life of total silence? I've tried it, but never never more than for a week at a time. And that was even a stretch. And the place where I tried it was at Gethsemane Abbey in Kentucky. I used to make a yearly pilgrimage there with my friend Ron Lewinsky. Ron's now of blessed memory. Ron was a priest in the Archdiocese of Chicago, and as well as having been a parish priest, he served directly two cardinals. First, he was the director of the Office of Divine Worship for Cardinal Joseph Bernardin, and then later, decades later, served as the director of parish transformation from current for current Chicago Cardinal Blaise Supich. And Ron and I would go for a week to Gethsemane Abbey. And because Ron, as a priest of the Archdiocese of Chicago, was the church's version of a made man, he was connected. We got to stay not in the retreat house where the great unwashed stay. We got to stay in the actual monk's quarters. That was really cool. So full disclosure, we'd go for a week of silence but we would go for walks in the woods around the Abbey and talk and debrief. And on Wednesday nights, we would escape and go the 25 miles back up the road to Bardstown to the distillery for steaks and bourbon and sneak back in, back into our cots in the monks' quarters. So this Abbey is where Thomas Merton lived until his death in 1968. He was, um, when he was finally allowed by the abbot there to uh, travel, uh, he traveled to Bangkok, Thailand, I think it was, yeah. And uh, during this trip, when he was meeting with uh, mostly Buddhists, but other leaders of other traditionally Asian religions, um, he was in his room and an electric fan uh, somehow fell into the bathtub with him and he was electrocuted. It was tragic. Merton became famous in the early 60s for his books, his autobiography, The Seven-Story Mountain, and then other uh, especially popular books by Merton. There were many uh, new seeds of contemplation, Mystics and Zen Masters and Zen and the Birds of Appetite. I'll put links to a lot of that in the show notes. So Thomas Merton was deeply interested in Asian religions, especially Buddhism. And, you know, his influence of 
seeing a bigger story in spiritual life is really, along with the Franciscan Richard Rohr and his teachings, are really the inspiration for this whole project, the Bigger Story podcast and the Bigger Story community we're beginning to build around it. So Merton, deeply interested in Asian religions, especially Buddhism, he, he found congruence between the desert monastics, who were these early Christian hermits who lived these very austere lives in the desert in Egypt way back in the third century. And uh, these desert monastics, women as well as men, by the way, they're sometimes referred to as the early desert fathers. Uh, there were desert mothers too. You know how that's gone over history. So I want to make sure we include, we ca- I call them the desert monastics to include both women as well as men. And they formed the basis of Christian monasticism. And Merton saw a similarity, a congruence between these desert monastics and Zen Buddhism. A Jesuit named John Coleman wrote about a decade ago in American Magazine about the desert monastics and described them as seeking a kind of loss of the self, which is what we were talking about in episode three about this crazy concept of, I call it crazy because it just, it's, you know, it's esoteric if you hadn't heard it before, this concept of kenosis, this emptying of self patterned after the emptying of Jesus Christ. He empties his life out for others um, throughout his whole earthly pilgrimage and journey and then empties his life out completely on the cross. And um, so this Jesuit, John Coleman, describes the desert monastics as very much about this kenosis, this loss of self, and a, a subsequent merger, a consequent merger, into a larger reality which transcends self. So time travel with me now. I have a friend, Lee Arnold, who along with his wife, Gabby, is a practicing Buddhist, a member of the Sokagaki International Nichiren Buddhism community in the U.S. Uh, And by the way, Lee Arnold, in addition to being this very deep spiritual practicing Buddhist who teaches me a lot, has taught me so much uh, over the last five, six, seven years uh, that I've known him, uh, he also is acknowledged as one of the fathers of progressive rock radio in the United States. So if you are aware of or have a memory of what progressive rock radio, almost almost like underground rock radio, but it was above ground at this point, progressive rock radio, you can thank Lee as one of the fathers of that. So uh, he and his wife, Gabby, are practicing Buddhists um, of what's called the SGI, International USA Buddhist Community. Uh, and that community, one of their preeminent teachers is... Daisaku Ikeda. And Lee frequently shares quotes and teachings from Daisaku Ikeda on social media, Facebook especially. So today, today being Tuesday, March 21st, as I record this episode four of 2023, Lee shared this one from Daisaku Ikeda. The age when silence is considered an indication of wisdom is over. 
just repeat that. The age when silence is considered an indication of wisdom is over. This is an age of the people, an age of dialogue, a time when people must share their opinions and thoroughly discuss things to withdraw into an isolated world of quiet contemplation leads to defeat in life. And that sounds so right to me. So many need our voices, need us to join our voices with their voices. So I read that. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And then I paused. And I remember that a lot of us sometimes fall into a trap where we share our voices half-cocked, where we don't do the work, the research, the deep thinking that makes sure that what we're saying actually represents wisdom, that what we're saying gives life, gives hope. We don't always ourselves have to do that work, the uh, research, the deep dives. We don't always have to do that ourselves. Spiritual community, that's what spiritual community is all about, is that within spiritual community, together, because none of us is as smart as all of us, or together as we acknowledge the wisdom of certain teachers among us in a spiritual community, we can find teachers that we can come to trust their pattern of wisdom over time. And once we do, we discover too that the best ones, the best teachers of wisdom, the the best spiritual leaders, spiritual teachers, are the ones who teach us how to do that work for them, for ourselves and not always to rely on them. However, a lot of that is dependent on our life stage and our current commitments in life. Because sometimes uh, if we're busy raising children or busy in a vocation, in a career, in an occupation that is just taking all of our energy, um, we that's another reason why we might want to locate ourselves in some kind of spiritual community with the spiritual leaders, with spiritual leaders and teachers that we can trust. Because if we are not in a space in our own li- in our own lives where we can do that deep dive. Uh, we can rely on the pattern of wisdom of those spiritual leaders and teachers. Instead of just being busy all the time, having something bother us, and then spouting off half-cocked. And this is, by the way, this is why anti-intellectualism and the devaluing of experts doesn't work. Because we can't do the deep dive on every issue ourselves. And so we need experts We need people devoted to intellectual rigor and integrity and authenticity, ones that we can trust. So back to uh, Daisuku Ikeda's quote that my friend Lee shared, the age when silence is considered an indication of wisdom is over. This is an age of the people, an age of dialogue, a time when people must share their opinions and thoroughly discuss things. To withdraw into an isolated world of quiet contemplation leads to defeat in life. I stopped and I thought, well, I think at least sometimes, maybe even a lot of the time, silence is also required. 
a reverential silence or a contemplative silence, a silence born of humility. And that's when I thought of Thomas Merton, who so much of his life was spent in silence. And I found this quote from Merton. In a world of noise, confusion, and conflict, it is necessary that there be places of silence, inner discipline, and peace. In such places, love can blossom. In such places, love can blossom. In one of Merton's books, Mystics and Zen Masters, he says of Zen, that it is, and I'm quoting Merton now, he says that Zen is a concrete and lived way of being which explains itself not in theoretical propositions, but in acts emerging out of a certain quality of consciousness and awareness. Only by these acts and by this quality of consciousness can Zen be judged. And that's when my head exploded in a good way because I was able then to relate back to what my friend Lee shared from his Buddhist master, his Buddhist teacher, Daisaku Ikeda, and put it into dialogue with Merton. Uh, Ikeda, on the one hand, saying the time for silence, the age of silence is over. And Merton, who devoted so much of his life to silence, but then says in his book, Zen and Mysticism, that out of this silence, out of the inner discipline and peace of silence where love blossoms, the next move from love are acts emerging out of that discipline of silence and awareness, and that ultimately it's only by these acts and he was writing about Zen, that Zen can be judged. And then I thought, wait, okay, so, you know, Merton being a Christian monk, a Roman Catholic monk, uh, he would have been, uh, he, he could have quoted Matthew 17 at the drop of a hat. And Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew in the 17th chapter says, you will know people by their fruits. He says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So that's not just every tree that bears bad fruit, but according to this, it's every tree that doesn't bear any fruit, too. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will know people by their fruits, Jesus says. And I'm thinking that this is this synthesis of what first started to seem like two opposite sayings, one from Daisaku Ikeda about the age of silence as an indication of wisdom is over and that we need to raise our voices, and Merton advocating this silence and discipline of contemplation where love can blossom. Uh, but then Merton helps bring it into the synthesis so that there's this kind of spiral of living and learning the spiral of wisdom where we experience life and then we contemplate silently and then contemplate less silently in collaboration with others and community and then we act. And 
our actions will always be somehow flawed, but we can't not act because we're afraid we might make a mistake. At some point, we have to risk erring, making a mistake, or we just don't do anything. So we act, however flawed that is, and then it's a spiral because the next thing we do after our action is contemplate it silently and then contemplate it verbally in community with others out loud. And then we act again. And then we contemplate silently and then contemplate and learn out loud. And then we act again. It's this spiral of wisdom and lived life. I think this is vitally important for you and for me and so many others right now that we look around in our world and we feel called to raise our voices. Sometimes we're not sure if the way we're raising our voices is the right way. And I can guarantee you that the moment you do raise your voice, there will be somebody who will be triggered by what you have to say because it will, there's always a flaw. There always is. So we, but we can't not raise our voices ever. And I can guarantee that when we do, there's someone, whether what we have to say is, is flawed or not flawed, uh, they're going to come after us. You see it all the time on like Facebook, right? You know what I'm talking about. But we can't let that cower us into silence. Um, there are too many relying on us right now. I think of our black loved ones who would appreciate and value our part who would appreciate and value our participation with them in works of anti-racism in works of racial justice and in so doing that we would trust them and especially the wisdom teachers among them for their wisdom and I say them as a, as a white person, um, if you are one of my black loved ones, I have learned to trust you and your wisdom because you have lived the injustice and you have lived the racism. If not you, your parents or your grandparents lived under Jim Crow. You lived before 1964 and the passage of the Civil Rights Act. And you don't have to be that old to have lived in places of deep voter suppression, of racial profiling by police in communities. And so we raise our voices, not always sure how, and we look to wisdom teachers, spiritual leaders, and trust their wisdom when we're not sure what to say. I'm perfectly content to ask a black loved one whose wisdom I have come to trust to ask for help with my words as a white person speaking about issues of anti-racism and racial justice and injustice as a white person speaking in what are predominantly white spaces. A black loved one does not need me or you, if you are white, to go speak 
in traditionally black spaces. When we're in those spaces as a white person, we listen. And then we go to other places that are predominantly white and we share what we've learned. I've thought about the anti-drag show law passed in Tennessee. The uh, law says that adult cabaret performances, in other words, drag shows, in public or in the presence of children are banned from occurring within 1,000 feet of schools, public parks, or places of worship. Well, I wish I was still serving Riverside Church at Park and King in Jacksonville, Florida, because I'll tell you what I would do. I would welcome the drag show into our place of worship and challenge the state to tell me what to do in our church. I've started to do a deep dive on this subject for a variety of reasons that we don't need to go into right now in this episode. And part of the deep dive I did, this is the way my strange brain works, is I got on Getty Images. Getty Images provides for a fee, if you want to share them, strongly vetted journalistic photos. Their benchmark is incredibly high that they are strongly vetted journalistic photos, no adaptations, no photoshopping, real photojournalists, real photos of real events, real things, real people. And what I looked for on Getty Images were photos of KKK assemblies across the South, Klan assemblies in public. Why? Because I knew, I mean, how could you not know that in those pictures would be men with gowns on, dresses on? You know, (laughs) Tennessee passes a law that says certain people and men uh, who are drag queens, typically that means men in dresses, they're banned from the thousand feet of schools, public parks, places of worship where children are present. So I look on Getty Images to find these pictures of men in gowns, their KKK robes, all signs of vile hate with children present. And there were these KKK family events all over Getty Images, all across the Southeast, Tennessee included. Children present, men in gowns, signs of vile hate. (laughs) So why, here's my question, why aren't those assemblies? I looked all over Tennessee state law, and you can't find it. Why are, are those assemblies not banned in the presence of children? not banned from occurring within a thousand feet of schools and public parks or places of worship. Men in gowns that mediate vile hate and that stand for the exclusion of people not like them, not banned. Men in gowns, in drag shows, in cabarets, where no one is excluded 
banned. Now that's as far as I'll go because I need to dive a little deeper and really do my research and speak more with my queer friends, with my friends who are drag queens, in order to really speak with any kind of wisdom. But I think I'm on to something. Do we raise our voice or are we silent? That's the paradox. And a paradox is not solvable. If it was, it wouldn't be a paradox. When we encounter paradox, the best we can do is stand between both truths with both feet planted firmly in thin air, A-I-R, and to air, E-R-R, on the side of raising our voices when we believe that issues of inclusion and exclusion and justice and love versus hate are at stake. Because to quote Pastor Martin Niemöller, a World War II-era German pastor, Lutheran pastor, he's been quoted so many times the last six or seven years, and here it comes again. This is why we risk and dare speaking, even if we're not sure about our wisdom, but are sure that we're erring on the side of love against hate. Because to quote Pastor Niemöller, first they came for the communists, and I did not speak out because I was not a communist. Then they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak out for me. Back to the monks of the Abbey of Our Lady of Gethsemane near Bardstown, Kentucky, to take us out. Stay in touch, Pastor Bruce Cole at gmail.com. And now you can keep further track of a bigger story, both the podcast and the community that we're beginning to create and some written reflections about where we're headed. Here's how you do it. Just go to a bigger story.substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K a bigger story.substack.com. And there you can also subscribe for a newsletter alerts uh, that come uh, several times a week about what's going on with the a bigger story community and the podcast. And if you'd like to help support the bigger story podcast and community that we're building, you'll find an opportunity to do that too. Remember you are loved.